Spring is a little bit here, and Coin Talk is back. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-host is Jay Kang. We'll have him here shortly. Kind of just powered through a bunch of topics today. Uh, DTube. What does it mean when you start a company and it's holding a lot of its value in crypto and crypto crashes? We talked about uh, whether this could be really an alt season or if this is just a fake out alt season. And we talked about an article that kind of gets into what might happen if the economy actually did go all crypto and what kinds of uh, effects it has that the central bank is uh, introducing liquidity and pumping money in and fighting recessions, et cetera. All stuff that we don't totally understand. And therefore, this really isn't investing advice. It's more like fumbling around the dark. And I invite you, the listener, to fumble in the dark with us. We're brought to you in partnership with Medium. Medium has tons of great writing on crypto. I find more every time I go on. There's a landing page that's at me.dm slash crypto. Kind of just curates the best stuff that's up there every day. I don't have as much time as some people to read up on everything, so I like a little curation, a little bit of someone telling me what to keep my eye on. And also, uh, some of those people make great guests, and we're going to have them on in the next few weeks, the people who've been writing over there at Medium. Uh, you can reach us at hi at cointalk.show. Hey, did you like our mailbag episode? We're going to do another one next month. So send us those mailbag questions, anything you're confused about, any comments you have, what have you. All right, here's the show. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Wednesday, April 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $7,937. Jay, how, how are you? <laughs> I'm, feeling, uh, I'm feeling a little spring in my step. Well, the weather is not cooperating with us, but there is a strange thing that happened today when I looked at coin market cap and all the top coins, which is that I saw like not only green, but some double digit numbers. And I cannot remember the last time I saw that. Some random alts to FOMO out on just floating to the top of those Bitrex lists. I, I think I was like, holy shit, maybe I should buy this thing that is going up. Well, if you felt that way, think about how I felt. <laughs> um our uh, our editor posed in the question uh, asked for uh, solicited topics uh, for the show, both on Twitter and uh, in our uh, private Telegram channel, on which Coin Talk is produced. And uh, our editor asked, uh, "Is it alt season?" To which I said, "I don't really know if there'll ever be an alt season, or like if alt season is even a relative concepts relevant concept uh, at this juncture." But I'll tell you how this day felt, Jay. I think you yeah. may re recognize this. Now, was your schooling your, uh, in the uh, New England area? The first few years of my life, yes. Until like fifth grade, yes. And then college. As uh, well. College is what I'm talking about. This is a college phenomenon. Yes. Where it's about this time of year. It's like early April. And there's one kind of hot day. <laughs> and there's like the big grassy hill. And everyone is like out and there's like dudes in like basketball jerseys and like girls in short shorts. Yeah. And everyone's like vibing and it's like spring is here. And 
it's totally mistaken. It's like all going to go away shortly. But for that one day, you can enjoy it. It is the best day if you went to, as I believe you and I both went to a New England small college. <laughs> um, That's correct. That's correct. It's, it's the best. I went to one in Maine. I believe you went to one in Central Connecticut. It is really the best day That's of the correct. year. It's like you wear shorts, you wear flip flops. It's about like maybe 52 degrees, but it feels like it's 80. Girls are wearing shorts. Guys are like showing off weirdly pale bodies, but you know, everybody is happy. It really, I, I will think that back in, in college, all my best days in college might have been that first day where you could bust out shorts and kind of walk around like a human being. Everyone is getting along with each <laughs> yeah. other. All these people who've been like viciously sniping against each other during the cold winter are suddenly like all on the same page. And that's how that's how I felt when I saw like yesterday that Ubik was up 40%. I was like, yeah, I'm riding on team Ubik with Doug Kim again, you know? <laughs> Although I had done my Ubik a long time ago, but I was just kind of like was just kind of happy for everyone. <laughs> yeah, it is true. It's the first real actual win that I think we've had in three months or four months, maybe, right? Like it, it just feels all my all my old favorites, Viacoin. Remember Viacoin? Oh I'm sentimental God. about these coins from early in our early in our days. <laughs> you know, you and I both owned Viacoin at some point, and I believe correct me oh, yeah. if I'm wrong. It was about like a dollar. Bought and bought it about a dollar seventy. Yeah, and we were always debating whether or not we should dump at a dollar twenty. And since then, Viacoin has gone up and down and up and down and up and down. And yeah. it seems funny that you and I were like uh, kind of arguing over such small percentage changes. The, the funny thing is that I don't even remember where any of these coins, like I would have to look at historical data to know where they were. I just remember the old times we had together. Yeah. It's not about where we are now and where we were then. I think we're probably up from then. Oh yeah, I mean, we when we got in, Bitcoin was about like twenty nine hundred to thirty five hundred. So you know, we're at least yeah. That. I mean, I I think a lot of those coins probably are wrecked to Bitcoin, but like, what else is yeah? There? So I have a question. I mean, you asked a, our editor asked a question, and you posed it once again. Yeah, which is is it alt season? And you know, I think that we can define at least one alt season during. The past year, I got a I got a pair of uh, mesh basketball shorts <laughs> on here, some soccer sandals. The last alt season seemed to be when Bitcoin was around like fifteen to seventeen thousand, and all these stupid alts were mooning. And this is about the time when you and yeah. I both signed up for somewhere between four to ten separate <laughs> exchanges to buy shit coins. Sure. It's when you started your sort of disastrous and lengthy, but I will say very committed. Uh, relationship with sumo coin do you remember when i had the plan to just collect them all yeah. like i was just gonna buy every coin that i could every coin on bitrax and probably if i had succeeded in that i would have been like what if i get at least one of every coin on cryptopia yeah and Th that that would be an amazing brag to be like i have every coin that's ever come out when was that that was like back in november right so yes we are now in april so it's been five months Look, I hesitate to say that it's alt season right now because all these things are so wrecked, right? So at some point, if we were going to continue this analogy that we're using, if there is like a deep yep. freeze, you know, and half of the college population died of hypothermia, and then one day it got up to like 33 degrees, 
is that really like yeah. spring or are we still in some sort of winter and there's this sort of delusional day? I think that's a question that everybody is asking right now. I'm sure that at least what the market is showing is that people are really pouring back into this stuff and they believe it's real. But do you believe this is real? I think we're probably like still in no man's land here, at least until like a few of these days string together. I don't know what's until that happens. I don't know what's going to happen, but I do feel, I feel a glimmering of that because just like that people would be buying alts at all right now, considering the sort of existential questions that have come up on this show about alts. I think it's just a strong sign that like people are willing to like while out again. Okay, I, here's my other question: Who is buying these alts? Neo, I can like Neo Le- is up. Ledger status. He's <laughs> buying. Good. He's he's buying alts. We had him on last episode. Neo's up twelve percent today, right? Uh, I can understand why some people in China and Asia would buy Neo. EOS is up forty five percent today, right? But yep. every single coin is up. I mean, like OMG is up. Bitcoin Gold is up. Steam is up. One chain is actually down, but like Decred is up. All of our old favorites, like when you and I had like every single alt in the world between the two of us, like every single one of those is up. Some of these, I'm pretty sure in the past, in the past like six months or so, have been abandoned. Is there just money flowing in randomly, or do you think that this is some sort of other effect where everything kind of goes up at once? Dentacoin is up two percent. You know, like I cannot imagine a person who would buy Dentacoin. <laughs> I I think that the alt market is full of crafty speculators now. People are sniffing a run, and they're just... I mean, look, they've it's worked in these cases. The EOS one's an airdrop, which is like... It just seems like people are willing to engage in the same behaviors they have previously engaged in in the alt market. People have not, like, wised up. Well, if it is all crafty speculators now, you know, if it is people who's trading abilities are somewhere around the level of ledger who we had on last time who's a friend of ours then i would argue that maybe this is somewhat to use a poker analogy like like what happened when poker kind of came back but then everyone realized that there's no dumb money left anymore yeah and that it's just good players playing against one another and that that sort of market is difficult to sustain because everyone is playing the exact same game i i'll just say i'll buy that 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 sounds that sounds relevant to me Talking about alts and ICOs, just a little bit of news that I think we should talk about, which is that the biggest ICO, which was the Telegram, T-O-N is the Telegram Open Network, and the Gram is the name of the currency. If people remember, Telegram is the messaging app that's supposed to be encrypted. It's debatable whether it is or not. And they launched an ICO to try and build sort of like a layer on top of their messaging network in which people could use it almost as Venmo, but also it's open marketplaces, everything like that, right? They had an announcement today that they are most likely not going to do the public part of their ICO and that the only people who are going to get the Gram token or the only people who are able to invest in this are the sort of friends and family first round of people, which I think like rumor was that it included everyone from like rich people here in the United States to like Roman Abramovich, who is the oligarch who owns the Chelsea Football Club. What do you think happened here, Aaron? Well, so, okay, it's basically open to accredited investors, which is, we've talked about before, is people who have uh, make over $200,000 a year or something like that. 
What, what's the accredited investor line? Do you remember? Uh, you had to make like $250,000 a year, but I don't think that was even yeah. true of Telegram. I think that basically Telegram, it was people actually had no idea how to invest. And one thing that happened was that there were all these scams going on. People being like, I have a backdoor to get the Gram token. Just give me half a Bitcoin or something like that and I'll exchange it for you. And a lot of people, for reasons that I cannot even begin to fathom because it seems so stupid, <laughs> but a lot of people were taken in by this sort of stuff. What Telegram basically said was the reason why we did the ICO is raise money and we raised enough money to build the Telegram open network, which again is a sort of you know ecosystem of shops and, and currency. But like, I, here's the thing that I can't quite get. Maybe you can elucidate it for me, which is that if they're building the Telegram open network, right, and it is powered by the Gram token, what type of economy are they building where like nine people now hold all the grab tokens and nobody else could get them, you know, with that until like the market opens. They're basically they have basically created an oligarchy within <laughs> within the Telegram open network, have they not? Nobody else can buy it. Few things caught my eye in this in this story is like maybe the story behind the story or the story that will keep repeating itself, which is one of the reasons that they had to do the sale this way and not do the traditional ICO is that the product doesn't yet exist. So it falls under uh, various securities regulations differently. And this is unusual. Like it's unusual to be raising this much money for something that is not yet functional. Like this is a unique element of the crypto economy, the sort of cart before the horse yeah, it, kind of thinking. It's not even necessarily that it doesn't exist yet. It's that when you read the white paper, which we did on an earlier episode, they can't really even articulate what it is. <laughs> it's just some shit that they're going to build, which is like, it'll probably work. Do you like Telegram? Great. Okay, now trust us. You know, we're going to build something really cool involving crypto on top of Telegram. And that that was about it. So, you know. But here's the second thing that caught my eye, which is, Basically, I think what Telegram's saying is if we can just get the money, if people just want to just give us all the money, that would be better for us than having a openly traded token and a gazillion owners who are shifting and speculating and selling and want us to do various things that will affect the price of the coin. If you just got Roman Abramovich and a bunch of other rip people who are just like, hey, fuck it, do whatever will make money in the long run or like the short run or whatever, that's a better situation for the people behind it. So in some ways, like a true ICO is kind of like a step down from Silicon Valley style. I'm just going to give you a bunch of cash, especially when it's not like, oh, there's going to be a board or something behind it that represents the interest of that cash. You know, if they could really just take the money, not distribute the tokens, that's the best case scenario for them, right? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you for them. I guess it is just weird for a thing that involves this amount of money, right? Which is like, uh, yep. I think they raised... $1.2 billion or something like that. Or they, they they say that they've, the SEC filing said they raised $1.7 billion. Where the messaging can change immediately from, we want to create like an open network with this Gram token that is used to fund what a lot of people think crypto should be, which is this sort of uh, decentralized marketplace, right? Where you don't have to use fiat currency and you can trade cryptos and you can sort of bank money yeah. that way. To now just being yeah. like, actually, we're not even going to make that token for a while. Yeah. It's just weird. It's kind of like, it's a crypto thing. Or if we could just fund it, however, it's a whatever kind of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Be like, guys, you knew that all we wanted to do is raise $1.7 billion. And we did that. So what's the problem? <laughs> you know? 
I guess it's still a blockchain product, but as we've talked about lots of times, possibly confusingly, as these blockchain products drift from being either like truly decentralized applications or from being operated through like a token system like this, I kind of fail to even understand exactly what category that product ultimately will fall in. Is it the app category? Is it a cryptocurrency category? Is it some kind of a new thing that doesn't exist yet? Yeah, I I agree. I have no idea. And this just made it more confusing. So on another sort of marketplace type idea, Bloomberg wrote about this, and I found it actually very interesting. Kind of has to do also with what we talked about with Maria Bastios before in terms of content creation. And it's something that's called DTube, and there's also like a version called Steemit. But the basic idea is like, have there been decentralized YouTube? Can there be a decentralized Facebook? Can there be a decentralized Twitter? The Bloomberg article is about a guy who like had a ton of YouTube followers. I think what he did mostly is like bodybuild and eat competitively, which is like half of YouTube. You know, the other half is like, you know, people yelling about social justice warriors. So this guy had a big following and then he moved everything to DTube, which is sort of like a micro tipping version of YouTube that is supposed to be decentralized. I don't know if it is yet or not, but the idea is that when this thing is up and running, that if you as a viewer like what's going on, you could sort of in the same way that you can do it on Twitch and other places, you can sort of like micro tip that way. And what do you think about this? Clearly, we're hitting some sort of an end of the road for things like YouTube and like all the problems that happen when you create that kind of an environment, I think. Yeah. Like I can understand why these content creators would want to go on to some sort of a totally decentralized, anonymous tipping system. But I don't really understand like why a bunch of viewers are going to like leave YouTube and go to DTube. Well, you don't think, I guess if you have a following and it's functionally the same thing that maybe they would follow you that way. And that, you know, like yeah. people like PewDiePie and all these big YouTubers, they, they, they all use micro tipping systems anyway, you know? So like this would just be yeah. an integrated one. Let me read you the six newest videos on DTube because I think you and I had the same assumption that when we hit the newest videos that have been uploaded, it would all be beheading videos, you know? <laughs> but it's, it's actually not. The first one is about the Toronto housing market crash, uh, which makes no sense. The second is the Woody Allen film Sleeper. The third is uh, seems to be some sort of like a retelling of the birth of the of Saint Mary, the Virgin Mother of God. In fact, uh, as I scroll down, the only one that looks even somewhat questionable, but certainly would be okay on YouTube, is a uh, ad for Brahma beer in which boobs are inflated and deflated, which uh, I think was like around the internet five years ago. So there's really nothing right now that seems particularly disturbing to me. What's pushing this is not like a need for blockchain-based or decentralized systems. It is really just that people are really, really frustrated with the current centralized systems, not because they're necessarily centralized, because they were okay with them two years ago, but because there have been problems that have come up where the people feel like the central powers are acting against them, right? I mean, if I were to like extrapolate in a generally somewhat nonlinear and confused manner about this, and this is mostly things that I think are happening on the internet more so than things I'm actually involved with on the internet, but like the whole like Twitch TV phenomenon 
people watching each other, playing video games. And the idea that that whole platform is not only for streaming video game playing, but it's sort of like, is the culture of that? Like it's the creative, the culture. Um, I always find it the most effective to think of crypto, not as a monetary system, but as a culture. And it makes a lot of sense that if crypto expands as a culture, it builds its own institutions like YouTube, Twitter, et cetera. So I kind of buy that at some point, most of the people who are deep into this stuff will be like using its native chat, its native video upload system. I I can kind of believe in that future. Yeah, me too, actually. And I don't really think that the way that YouTube wants YouTube to go is particularly interesting to me, at least. And I do think that the people who have the power like they can they can take Alex Jones off of YouTube, right? But if Alex Jones goes to DTube, then everyone who really is into InfoWars is just going to go to DTube, you know? And all the people who like watching Alex Jones because they like to make fun of him will go to DTube, you know? It's not like they're going to stop watching it just because it's off YouTube. Like they'll certainly lose some people. But it could be as we find in a lot of ways with these Patreon sort of podcasts or 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 or, or people who live off these massive amounts of microtips that it might end up being more lucrative for them. So I actually am like pretty bullish on all of this stuff. I mean, the DTube page, like it just looks like YouTube. There's really not that much difference to it. The only thing I'll say that is that at first, because you have to pay with cryptocurrencies, I believe, and the whole system is run off cryptocurrencies, that it'll really only attract people who are willing to take that second step to buy a cryptocurrency and then participate in this. That's probably gonna be a lot of like you know racist, <laughs> all right guys at first, um, but you know a lot yeah. of most of the internet yeah. starts out with like a bunch of like a lot. Of, <laughs> look, a lot of things start with racists on the internet. I mean, I just think that the people it attracts. I'm not even judging them. They're gonna be a pain in the ass. Okay, like if that's your core content offering, that may have problems i think look if you are envisioning dtube as being like cambridge analytica trump fake news nipples from that have migrated (laughs) over from instagram and like a lot of beheading videos and then a lot of alt-right stuff i think you're probably right you know i think right now they probably are just scrubbing all that stuff off their page that's why it's so clean right now but that's what it's going to be for a while you know, different things will move in and there will be more communities. Like it's similar to what we see with Reddit, you know, like uh, where a lot of Reddit is just porn. And at the beginning, it had really, really reprehensible subreddits like, you know, like revenge porn or or creep shots or jailbait, all these things that Adrian Chen wrote about. And now it's like no coiner, Adrian Chen, <laughs> no coiner, Adrian Chen wrote about And now it's more or less, it's not great, but, you know, they're trying to make it clean and there are people who use it for uh, interesting conversations, but it's still like a little bit of what it was when it started. Don't you think that that's kind of like the future for these types of decentralized platforms? I think so. I think that's the, I think that's the bull case, probably. That is the bull case. Yeah. That's, that's as good as it could go. (laughs) Let's not even discuss how bad it it could go. It could go so bad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right, so do you want to talk about George Soros? Yeah, I mean, uh, so t- tell us what happened with George Soros. Um, I, look, this is the most strange story possible, but like a lot <laughs> of outlets started 
reporting earlier this week that George Soros, who back in January said Bitcoin is a bubble, this was at Davos when he said that, he said that now he might be into Bitcoin, but it's actually impossible to figure out if he is or not. The closest thing we have to sourcing on this is a guy who works at the Soros Family Trust said that he wants to trade coins personally. <laughs> yeah. Which I don't know if it should be said yes or no. Like, it, you know, like for me, it's like, okay, if I say, my, if I do this podcast and I say, all right, I'm back into alt season and I'm going to buy a ton of zero X, does that mean like Shane Smith and Vice News or like the New York Times are super into, into crypto now? Like, it seems like it was a little bit of a stretch of sourcing. But then at the same time, I kind of believe that the some of the places that reported are pretty reputable. So I imagine that they're, that he probably is interested in it. Okay, so he said this publicly on January 25th. He said, as long as you have dictatorships on the rise, you have a different ending because the rulers in those countries will turn to Bitcoin to build a nest egg abroad. Yeah. First of all, that's total rich guy talk. <laughs> I'm not saying like I'm keeping a secret escape hatch in Bitcoin, but if it was, if I was going to do that, here's how I would do it. Yeah. I don't know. It seems like he's caught a little Bitcoin imagination fever. Here's the one thing that I would say is most uh, sort of telling is that the Soros Family Trust is the third biggest stakeholder in Overstock.com, which is basically Ooh. just like owning Bitcoin at this point. You know, like they've completely converted their operations <laughs> over to, to blockchain-based technology and, and their own ICO. And so I, I, there is evidence there. I mean, being the third biggest stakeholder in Overstock is certainly like a pretty large investment. I have a side note on this topic also. I'm always trying to tell people that conspiracy theory is a terrible place to go with your life. The Illuminati is not real. But when you have George Soros talking about a massive Bitcoin investment <laughs> and like he's the like big owner of Overstock, it does kind of feel like the world is some kind of a like weird virtual reality simulation. Yeah, especially when his reasoning is that, hey, dictators are going to start, start cashing out and building nest eggs in cryptocurrency. That's why I've got to be there. You know, what is what is George Soros now? How long till now to the very first George Soros paid protesters in Bitcoin story uh, do you predict? Okay, when is yeah. the next protest? Because that's when it'll be. <laughs> <laughs> the best conspiracy theories will be if Bitcoin actually does go on a bull run after George Soros buys it, you know? Hey, it probably will. Yeah, I mean, look, I, George Soros is, it, it seems like he's pretty bullish on it. And Okay, okay. Follow-up follow question. Yes. How much... Do you think of the current climate for Bitcoin as being set by the worldwide rise in authoritarianism? Uh, oh, that's actually a very good question. Um, I actually think that they are related. I think that they are related for two reasons. The first is that around the world, people who are far right authoritarianists or nationalists are all very interested in Bitcoin. Like, it doesn't matter the country that you go to, those people are interested in cryptocurrency. And so if there's more of them and they're hanging out and talking about cryptocurrency, it follows that there would just be more people into cryptocurrency. But I do think that part of it is because people are afraid of an extremely unstable world, right? And uh, they feel like this is a hedge. So even if you put 10% of your money into Bitcoin because you think it's a hedge and you don't care if it goes up or down because you're only basically waiting for you know, the bombs to start falling out of the sky, 
And for Bitcoin to go up like 100x so that you can, you know, live when your bank has been destroyed or something like that. You know, like those are decisions that people are making. Like all the prepper, big rich prepper guys, right, in Silicon Valley who have bunkers in New Zealand, they're all into Bitcoin. Like I, I don't think that that's only because they think the technology is interesting. I think they're probably doing it as a hedge too. I think our bunker is going to be the crypto cave. It's a great place to defend down here. Oh my god, it, it can't even like handle like three inches of snow without leaking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I when I look at myself as a test case, when I if I were to write a profile of why did Aaron buy Bitcoin for the first time, I do think that the election of Trump made me think that Bitcoin was a better investment. Now. It doesn't mean that I think like the United States is going to descend into some kind of a Fortnite-esque free-for-all with assault rifles. <laughs> but as we've seen with like various collapsing currencies around the world, if there's an overall rise in this kind of craziness and it leads other countries to fall and as... Soros says, or dictators to put money in, whatever. It doesn't matter. If people start pumping money into Bitcoin, it makes Bitcoin more valuable. And so I think probably Bitcoin became more valuable because of the rise of like an unprecedented set of authoritarian leaders elected in the last two years. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'm with you, man. And I don't, I think it's a very hard thing to prove. <laughs> and I think this sure. is the most like, tinfoil hat like conspiratorial that you and i well i would probably get a little bit more than this <laughs> we've talked about this from way back in the basement tapes right when we saw what happened in zimbabwe right where like the zimbabwean yeah. uh, currency crashed and there was all sorts of political instability and the price of bitcoin there was like two and a half x what it was on u.s exchanges and we we're like holy shit in zimbabwe you know, you and I not knowing, admittedly at the time and even now not knowing much about the economy of Zimbabwe, we're like, look, in Zimbabwe, people, when the shit hit the fan, put money into Bitcoin. Why would they not do that in other countries? And I don't think that we know that answer, but I think that we can reasonably assume that in some of them they will. Here's a bull case for Bitcoin. Massive international sudden demand due to worldwide instability. It's a dark place to go, but that would be a good time to be owning a bunch of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time it seems like we're veering towards some sort of, you know, war, which now seems like every two weeks, you know, like I really do <laughs> kind of appreciate the fact that I still have a little bit of Bitcoin. You know, it really is yeah. sort of a reassuring thought. And I don't think you and I are alone or even close to the extreme on this. I think that the sort of true believers and the maximalists are basically like, fuck yeah, destroy the world, you know? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of instability, I had one question for you that I've been like thinking about recently. I want to get your take on, which is so we just lost something like Ethereum, say. Yeah. From over $1200 down to trading below $400 at a point. Yeah. For all of these companies, which be anyone who's sitting on a ton of Ethereum and that is part of their future and business model, what do you think happens when the market takes that big a dip do the plans change do people get laid off no well, we haven't really heard of layoffs in blockchain companies but i don't think it's the type of thing that would be public anyway right because we don't even know where half of these companies are yeah 
And I would imagine that a lot of these companies bought in so early that unless they had some sort of crazy expansion plan that it was based on Brian Armstrong's declaration that the value of cryptos could only go up, you know, <laughs> like, uh, then I think that a lot of them might still be doing okay. But man, I don't know if you lose 60% from 1400 to like 400 or even like, you know, I was thinking about things like uh, Bail Block, which is that project in which like people from the New Inquiry magazine and their like sort of activism wing are mining Monero to try and bail people out. Like that sucks, you know, like you've lost a shitload of the money that you made and a lot of the power that you used to make that money has just been flushed down the toilet and then what do you do at that point do you reassess do you try and pick another cryptocurrency like do you start like trying other forms of fundraising like i don't know i mean i i think that probably a lot of those companies are either gone or in a shitload of trouble right now i don't know i mean do you think that they probably hold some fiat i mean they they must hedge in some ways against these kind of events yeah but i, I mean think. look like you maybe you don't know because you've mostly worked for yourself but like when these things happen, it's not just that your value goes down. It's that people lose who are working for you, lose focus. You know, a lot of people leave during these periods of time. You sort of have a brain drain and whatever seemed like forward momentum is gone. And that really matters to small companies that are you know, growing and trying to work in new spaces. I mean, good Lord, I've worked for several media startups and there's always this point where it happened at Grantland, which I think I could talk about candidly because, like, you know, everybody is right now. But, you know, there's a point where we came in at, at the beginning of Grantland and uh, somebody at ESPN had forgot to renew the URL. <laughs> and so we got to work and the website would, like, go, went, when you typed in grantland.com, it went to, like, a page that was, like, a, you know, buy this URL page. And it took two and a half days for us to fix it and to load everything back up. It was massively disruptive and dispiriting. And, you know, like, I, I don't know. I just think little things in new companies can feel catastrophic. So I imagine that these things are feeling somewhat catastrophic right now. I don't read it entirely as quite as negatively as you, but I would say it must be one of the defining things about investing a lot of your time and your career working in these projects that, like, these projects fates are also tied in some ways to value. If you even if you say like I don't care about value, I'm not a speculator, if you need a bunch of people to execute on a concept and the money you're holding to pay those people is held in crypto and those people have to be paid in US dollars or at least against some sort of a US dollar peg, you're on a roller coaster. Good times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I wonder how places like Consensus and other sort of big companies are doing right now. Yeah, yeah. they probably just have their heads down, honestly. Anyone who's still in in this truly believes it's going to recover. You know, you yeah, have to. You and I basically agree, uh, believe that too. So yeah. All right. So our last topic is an article that was written by one of my colleagues at Vice News. His name's Jim Surwicky. He was the financial columnist at The New Yorker for, I think, over a decade. He's a wonderful guy. He's very smart and thoughtful. The article he wrote made a lot of people in the Bitcoin community angry. You know, Jim is a no-coiner, but he is not an incurious person who like is just dismissing it. He is really just writing it because as an economist, as a guy who studied all this stuff, these are the conclusions that he came to. 
This was for the MIT Technology Review. We will put a link in our show notes. And it was called Bitcoin would be a calamity, not an economy. So, Aaron, uh, what can you tell us about this article? Okay, so I, I plead naive ignorance on several accounts. So it's like I read something like this. To me, I'm like, hey, it's pretty interesting. It's probably, you know, it seems to be pissing off like a lot of our people I'm friendly with who I think are smart in the crypto world. Not really pissing off, but just kind of like, oh, God, these arguments yeah. again. But for me, these arguments, I've never like had them totally clear in my mind. I've said things, Jay, you've heard me say on this show, yeah, I mean, I kind of think it's all going to work, but it might destroy the world. Yeah, that's your theme. That's uh, that's that's uh, that's something I think. And you're like, well, why are you holding crypto then? And it's like, well, I, you know, I don't want to have no money when the world is destroyed. But I didn't really understand what are the scenarios in which the world is destroyed. And one of them, he kind of lays out in this article basically about the ways that centralized bank uses the currency it issues and it is able to issue more of to control various things in the economy, which we generally look at as good for an economy. Basically, Jim is talking about how you control for things like recessions, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we just read the part that he that we're talking about here, which is Here's, this is the part where I think he explains it. If the dollar and the euro were replaced by Bitcoin, how would the system adapt and how would the economy and the financial system function? The simple answer is not well. Our economies and financial systems are built around fiat money and they rely on the central bank's control of the currency to help manage the business cycle, fight unemployment, and deal with financial crises. An economy in which Bitcoin was the dominant currency would be more volatile and a harsher economy in which the government would have limited tools to fight recessions and where financial panics once started would be hard to stop. So basically, like he is arguing in the piece that you kind of need liquidity, right? Like you need you need an ability to print more money because you need to solve crises. So if Bitcoin is being all held by a small group of people and there's only 21 million of them or however many there are after the ones that were burned, that's an impossible system to issue liquidity in. Yeah. You know, to someone who wouldn't really know which economic model to trust, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think that that harsher world, I think that there are people who are, who are believe in Bitcoin who also believe in that harsher world or believe that some sort of a calamity is coming anyway. And that therefore we might as well go to like Bitcoin which is to say the centralized banking system is also on the brink of failure, I think would be their viewpoint. I do find it sort of convincing that people have designed this system in a specific way for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's true as well. And I think that, look, fiat currency is difficult to defend as a concept, but it certainly is a useful one. And I think that that uh, to solve crises and so that you don't have places completely crashing out and ever, uh, giant population suddenly becoming impoverished it's just not it just doesn't feel elegant and it doesn't feel fair in some ways right like if you look at the 2008 crash which is what precipitated the creation of bitcoin anyway but i've always thought it was odd to say that the ways in which the 2008 crash was handled that therefore means we should throw out the entire system right and not just say that whoa everything that was handled there was kind of handled in a fucked up way and maybe we shouldn't do that next time. Not to insult Mr. Sirowacki, whose uh, writing I very much enjoy, 
But I do think it's kind of a general no-coiner stance to look at this as a zero-sum game Yeah, where it's like, oh, Bitcoin is going to like replace all fiat and destroy the economy. And like, that's like the only eventuality uh, where it like succeeds and thrives. And I don't know. I feel like usually like the way that these things ultimately resolve is weirder than that. I don't think that possibility or the total failure of Bitcoin possibility, it seems like there's a lot of ground between those two. Oh, sure. And in in fairness to Jim, he was responding to what Jack Dorsey said when he said that Bitcoin would become the world's single currency within a decade. And so he's basically saying, okay, so if that happened, what would it look like? Right. Yeah. I think that's fair. But and that but and to be fair to you, I think that later on he does talk about okay, well, what if we had a system in which there were a lot of different cryptocurrencies? And this is the part of the article that I found the most interesting because like having a only Bitcoin system is difficult because no one really knows how many Bitcoin there are. Sort of Bitcoin hordes are very, very concentrated, like that guy in Thailand who had like a hundred thousand Bitcoin and nobody knew who he was, you know, like that's so much fucking Bitcoin. So he he does think about what would happen, like, you know, if you had Litecoin and Ripple and all these other economies. And he brings up a historical example that I want to read to you so that you can react to. This isn't speculative. We actually have a historical example of how this works. In the United States, in the decades before the Civil War, there was no national currency. Instead, it was an era of what was called, quote, free banking. Individual banks issued banknotes, theoretically backed by gold, that people used as money. The problem was that the further away from a bank you got, the less recognizable a bank's note was to people. And every time you did a deal, you had to vet the note to make sure it was worth what your trading partner said it was worth. So-called wildcat banks spread up, took people's money, issued a host of notes, and then shut down, making their notes worthless. (laughs) Sounds like an ICO to me. To be sure, people came up with workarounds. There were volumes that were a kind of Yelp for banking, displaying the panoply of blank notes and rating them for liability and value. But the broader consequence was that doing business was simply more complicated and slower than it otherwise would have been. The same will be true in a world where some people use Ethereum, some use Litecoin, and others use Ripple. Okay, this, this, this I, I actually find this to be a very contentious part of the piece. What do you think about it? Wait, 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 wait. I want to just say before we before we go any further that the free banking system, the post Civil War years, my first reaction to that is sounds like a great HBO show. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Competing banks, <laughs> weird old West ICOs. But Jim and I do novelly <laughs> work for HBO, so maybe maybe we can pivot. <laughs> <laughs> My further reaction is, yeah, maybe, but like, it just seems like we're projecting like very specific future outcomes on something that, like, if you looked at it one year ago, was would have looked so different. But I, do you feel like these two are analogous? Because, like, I, I don't want this to all be caveats, but you know, I do like Jim, and he, I do work with him, and so, and I think that what Jim would want, and what most people wa- want when they write, is for people to debate these the things yeah. that they say. Which is that I'm not sure if this analogy quite works because, like, the problem that he outlines with the sort of free banking system is that the further that you get away from the source bank, then you can't really tell what's a real bank or not. And people in Oklahoma might not be able to know what a banknote from Georgia looks like, right? But that is not necessarily a problem for cryptocurrencies because. If a place takes Litecoin, it's not like they're going to be duped into taking a fake Litecoin or something like that, right? Like, eh, 
the the idea that there is some sort of geographic concentration or any sort of concentration that is based on possible fraud through mistaking what the coin is, like that's not going to happen because of the way that cryptocurrencies work. To be a little bit more zoomed out about it, I, I think the part that's centrally apples to oranges in my mind is that when we look at these biggest currencies that he's citing, Bitcoin, Litecoin, also to a lesser extent, Ethereum, they're not issued by a bank, not a bank of any kind. And there's no claim of any reserve value to back them. They're just open-ended systems that people created that people have imbued with value. No one ever said a Bitcoin was worth anything. Like that is not the Satoshi vision that Bitcoin should become sort of some sort of an e-bank. The vision, as I see it, is that the rules of the system will be laid transparent and people will be able to make whatever they decisions they want around that. I'm not sure I'd say that about Ripple. But uh, for the <laughs> most part, most of these coins, you know, they're mined. Like proof of work is the only real like uh, value. Yeah, yeah. And, and the democratic process of buying in. So the, the one thing I will say, yes, I do agree that in a world where everyone is using a different coin, that there will, it'll be hard to do sort of complicated transactions. Yeah. But there are solutions to this stuff that are being worked out now, whether it's atomic swaps or like different applications of the lightning network. As things get faster, it's not like you're going to have to like go take your Litecoin and then compare it to in a book to another Litecoin and that you're going to have to get an appraisal to make sure that that Litecoin is right and then convert it into Bitcoin. The, these solutions can be somewhat faster and they can actually eventually, I think, become fast enough and are on the way to becoming fast enough where it is as instant as like a credit card transaction in a foreign country where, you know, there is a lot of sort of conversion going on, but you don't feel it. Okay, wait, hold on one sec, one sec. I'm still enjoying being in the uh, the open banks of the uh, <laughs> post-Civil War period timeline. And I'm like putting my mind into the mindset of the problems created in this uh, totally chaotic Wild West banking situation. And I think the most analogous would be like, okay, project into the future where everyone's taking most major cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Monero has flourished. Oh, I am yeah. uh, going skydiving. And the guy's like, yeah, man, I take Monero for this skydive. I'm like, I'm like a like middle-aged thrill seeker who wants to try skydiving for the first time. And I'm like, oh, hey, man, I have these Sumo coin, and Sumo coin is actually a Monero clone, and it actually is interchangeable on the Monero network, which is like, I think something people are like working on. There's a bunch of these like Monero forks now too, also. So I'm used, trying to use some kind of an off-brand clone or fork coin, and I'm like, you should accept it. And the guy's like, I don't know. I don't have like a wallet for that. Like, And you're like, no, you can just change it back to Bitcoin using the blah, blah, blah network. That's the kind of like everything doesn't work that well kind of future that I could see with a gazillion coins out there. I thought that you were saying that as like a good outcome where things would work and i was like this sounds fucking horrible <laughs> no well isn't the isn't the lesson of the open banking system was that it was like kind of a disaster yeah yeah and i don't actually even 
like, I don't disagree with Jim's conclusion that it would be bad to have, like, you know how you walk in and you see, like, a side that says we take MasterCard American Express and they have the little symbols and that now when you, like, in the eight stores across the world that take cryptocurrencies, they, like, have the little symbols on the bottom there. I'm pretty sure that already exists. I think that's really bad. No, no, it does exist, but in, like, eight places that, you know, they post constantly on Reddit. Like, I think that's bad, you know? I think it's bad when these currencies have different values. When you use a credit card, if you use a diner's card, which I don't know why anyone would do, but, you know, let's say that it's, like, 1985 or something like that, or you use the MasterCard, you're using the same currency. You know, it's just a different processing center. I think it's kind of bad to use Litecoin and Ethereum and Bitcoin and try and figure out how much you actually have to pay in every single one of them. I mean, can you imagine the poor waitress that would have to, like, split a bill between one person paying with Ethereum and one person paying with Litecoin. Like, you know, it's nonsense. So I agree with his conclusion. Uh, I think you could like have some sort of an, like an overall like Bitcoin standard price of Satoshis or something. I don't know. I think they could figure uh, it out. Yeah, Whatever it is, it's just unpleasant to think about, right? Like I'm not excited by thinking about it. This did uh, trigger a memory for me, which was that I went to the cheap, like uh, street corner ATM out by my bodega out by the, uh, just just outside the crypto cave here. And yeah. I was taking out money on like a pay ATM. And I was like, I'm not going to walk to the bank. I'm just going to like pay the fee. I'm going to do it. Okay, I did it. Doing it. And there was like a big bumper sticker on the top of the ATM that was like, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, Google them. And then it was like, want to tip me? And a like uh, uh, QR code. I was like, what? Tip you? Why would I tip you for putting up a like, crypto bumper sticker onto my ATM. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's doing the Lord's work and putting out the word of Bitcoin, I guess. But that is very, very weird. I mean, that's just a scam, you know? The bodega near my house actually has a Bitcoin ATM, and I cannot figure it out. Oh, yeah. What's up with that? I don't know. I can't figure it out. Have you made, tried to make a withdrawal over? You can't make withdrawals. You can only buy Bitcoin with cash. Nah. <laughs> so... Um, if you put $10 in, they'll like give you a wallet address on a little receipt. All right. So my final note on the story, I was Googling the story to read it before we did the show. And I ended up on the wrong story, which was the very first story that he wrote about Bitcoin in 2011. Oh my God. I mean, it's actually, I, I think it like holds up pretty well and sort of like in some ways predicting where things would going and mostly sure. in a critical sense. But one detail caught my mind in this story that I think is kind of incredible. He's, he talks about the uh, head of the Swedish pirate party. This is 2011. He's like, this guy converted his life savings to Bitcoin. And it's kind of a like, this nut. Okay. Yeah. So a, what do you think? This was May, 2011. What do you think the price of Bitcoin was? May 2011, the price of Bitcoin, I bet, was about like $2.40. Very good guess. $3.50. Okay. $3.47. Okay. $3.47. So I was like, okay, uh, let's do a little buy back of the envelope math here. How much money do we think the head of the Swedish Pirate Party had in 2011? Oh, my God. Uh, $15 million. I mean, like, this is this guy is like a, a hacker anarchist. This guy's like living in a, like, guy's not like a rich guy. $400,000. Think about the guy who's like the guy who like started Pirate Bay, that kind of a guy. Yeah, fifteen well, okay. million dollars. <laughs> okay, you're, you're how gonna, much is it? You're gonna put your. He did. I don't know what. I, I don't know the answer. He never said yeah. what he put in. I did the conservative estimate as a hundred thousand dollars. If 
he had a hundred thousand dollars that is now worth seven hundred million dollars if bitcoin was seven thousand dollars but he must have sold a lot on the way yeah but uh i just have to say that was a great move i know here's the last question i feel like we should ask yeah are you going to buy alts I'm not going to do anything until I see a lot more rally than this. Okay. So you're not I'm getting just, you're not getting suckered in. I I will eventually be like tempted, but we've already seen so many bounces like around the $7,000 mark for Bitcoin. I'm just I'm not totally like seeing this until everything kind of starts like moving for a few days. What do you think? Uh, I'm with you. Like I'm sticking with my general thought that if Bitcoin isn't healthy, then all this is just noise. But man, yeah. I'm scrolling through coin market caps, like top 200 coins right now. And it is so tempting, you know, like dumb shit. I used to buy like Digibyte is up 14%. Like I had some point on Digibyte. <laughs> I'm glad I don't own it anymore, but man, it, it's I still tempting. hold a, a little bit of proof of stake wallet, PSOW. I still hold a little power, a little oh salt, a little Qtum. So oh, you, you still like, have those? <laughs> rather than FOMOing into this alt season, I've just sort of quasi accidentally rode this alt season. Those were all the things I had the smallest bags of, and they were just so incredibly wrecked that I just never did anything with them. So I'm just kind of like, oh, I'll just play this bingo card. Why not? Yeah, it's it's more annoying to have to sell it, you know? I mean, I would hope that those will have a pretty good week at some point in the nearest future, but who knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, what will it take for you to buy back in? I mean, I'm probably going to just kind of stick with most of what I'm holding right now, but... Uh, there, like a little bit of a rally, I might be interested in, in holding a little more Bitcoin than I'm holding right now. Or a huge crash. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, if there was a huge crash from here, I would just be like, I don't know what the fuck is happening. But I, I mean, you kind of like talked about it so much that I like now I think it probably will happen. So when it doesn't happen, I'll be like, phew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, all right. Uh, I'll talk to you next week. All right, talk to you next week. This episode of Coin Talk was taped Wednesday, April 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Bitcoin price index was $7,937. Uh, that was Coin Talk. Thanks very much to my co host, Jay Kang. Thanks to our partners at Medium. They have been really great over the last few weeks. Uh, check out all the best crypto writing. More and more great stuff at me.dm slash crypto. Hey, speaking of great writing, I've been reading a 2-Bit Idiots newsletter. He writes on uh, his Ryan Selkis. He writes sometimes on Medium. Highly recommend you check out his stuff. Consider his newsletter. Uh, we come to you as often as possible. You can send us an email. Hi at cointalk.show. See you soon.